When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everyone, if you like this podcast, go behind the paywall to get privileged access to the smartest minds in finance. Visit realvision.com slash rvpod and use the promo code podcast10. That's podcast10 to get 10% off our essential membership for the first year. Join the Real Vision community and learn how to become a better investor. And now to the top analysis of today's markets. CPI out tomorrow. How are traders positioned? Welcome to Real Vision Daily Briefing. It's Monday, February 13, 2023. I'm Ash Bennington, joined today by Dave Floyd, founder of Aspen Trading Group. And a little later in the show, Weston Nakamura. We got a great show ahead of us. Dave, welcome. Hey, Ash. Thanks for having me back. It's a pleasure to have you back, Dave. We said it at the top of the show CPI out tomorrow. What are your thoughts? How are you positioning yourself ahead of tomorrow's number? I'll answer your second question first. I'm not positioning ahead of it. Um, for me, it's too much of a binary outcome. You know, it's I don't see a, an upside. If you catch it one way or the other, I think it's pretty equally equal uh, to the upside, equal to the downside in terms of the market's reaction. So for me, that's not really a bet that I want to take. Dave, explain so, a little bit what you mean by binary outcome. Well, the way I look at it is, given that the CPI um, is such a focal point right now, if it misses big or if it comes in really you know, light, the market's gonna scream up or it's gonna scream down. So to me, if I go in position long or short, um, I don't view that as if I'm right, I'm gonna make three X, but if I'm wrong, I'm only gonna lose one X. It's gonna be three X either way. And to me, that's just not worth it. I don't wanna set myself up for a situation where uh, I'm positioned to make three X or two X on my capital, um, but I'm also going to lose that amount, too, if I'm wrong. So to me, yeah, I might miss out on the on the big initial move. That's OK. Uh, um, you know, with my capital and I've got clients capital, that to me is just not the right way to do it. Unless, of course, you're going in with with some hedging strategies and whatnot. And, and that's just not part of my overall, you know, um, game plan on a day to day basis. I'm purely in for the position and not hedged accordingly. So you're looking for asymmetric returns when you don't see them, you don't play. Bingo. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And you know what? They'll will. I guarantee there'll be some trades after the fact. Yeah, the market could go on a runway, uh, a one-way move up or down after the fact. That, but there'll be some pullbacks along the way, and then that's where I'll get in there and hopefully identify those asymmetric returns that you're mentioning. Well, let's take a little bit of a look here uh, into what's happening with CPI. Uh, Brian, Peter, if we could pull up that chart and just take a look uh, at where CPI has been, give us a sense of what this looks like. Obviously, we've seen some moderation in that number um, off a high of, I believe, 9.5%. Uh, so obviously, this is something that's been coming down uh, a bit here 
uh, in recent months on recent prints. I want to give you a little bit of context here. This is from the Wall Street Journal out today just to uh, give you a sense of what the expectations are. Quote, economists expect year-on-year -year inflation was 6.2% in January. That would mark the seventh straight month of easing. In December, inflation was at 6.5% core inflation, which strips out the volatile food and energy category. So X food and energy is seen rising 5.4% after a 5.7% rise in January, close quote. Uh, Dave, that gives a little bit of context to it. What does that mean in terms of what your positioning is in markets? Uh, for example, uh, I know we were talking a little bit earlier before the show uh, about your positioning on the S&P. Give us a little bit of a sense of what this means for markets more broadly, contextually. Well, again, this is kind of getting into more of the fundamental stuff, and that's not necessarily in my wheelhouse. However, you know, those are things that have to go through your head in terms of an understanding of what the markets looking at and what they're expecting. And as I kind of read into what was said right there and read into other reports that I've, I've gone through, it's really more of a question is where's the floor in, it, in this inflation um, coming off the highs, which is great. But the question is, is it going to get sticky up here or is it you know going to magically go to 2% like where the Fed wants it to? That seems to me obviously a bit unrealistic. So I think the way people are going to be looking at this report tomorrow is, are we still staying with sticky inflation? Yes, well off the highs, but certainly not you know, falling in a, in, a, in a rapid manner that's going to allow the Fed to, to change their stance on monetary policy. And we're still dealing with a market whose collective psychology is we need, we need low interest rates. We need, quote unquote, free money. We're still caught up in that decade old mindset. So everybody's latching on to when can we get the free money again? And I'm using that just as a general catchphrase. Right. Um, and until we, until the CPI or until the market collectively agrees on where that floor in uh, inflation comes in, that's the debate we're going to be going back and forth on. And that's going to create a lot of volatility on a week to week, day to day basis. Let me give a little bit of context here again, not to get too far into the fundamentals, uh, mm -hmm. but what's happening here. Uh, so the U.S. economy added 517,000 jobs in January. That was a blowout number. Uh, the forecast was it's two and a half X, the forecast or thereabouts, 2.3 X. Unemployment rate now sits at 3.4 percent. That's the lowest in more than 50 years. By the way, let me just correct myself here. All items CPI peaked in June at 9.1 percent, not 9.5 percent, but it still gives you first order of magnitude. It's almost, uh, I guess, a little bit silly because we don't really know how accurate these numbers are in terms of uh, the, the the real uh, sense where this is just a single gauge of inflation, obviously, and it's 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 hard to to measure this stuff precisely. And I sometimes we think we get a little too caught up in that was 9.1 or 9.5. So Dave, do you have any thoughts in terms of the positioning uh, when you look at that broader macroeconomic framework? I know you trade essentially on technical factors, uh, mm -hmm. but do you think about that when you see a number that comes out two and a half X uh, or thereabouts higher, uh, like the jobs number did, the NFP number did, when you look at a number like that, does that have an influence on the way that you think about what's happening? Well, for sure. I mean, and obviously the reaction that the market has to it adds to that. And actually, for me, that adds the clarity. It's like, okay, the market saw the number, it's doing this, who am I to argue? Um, I'll, I'll, I'll go in, in line with that. It is puzzling, though, given that everybody's calling for a recession and the fact that we've had a rapid rise in interest rates over the last year. Um, it is puzzling to see the, the jobs so, still so strong. I mean, that's a good thing. Don't get me wrong. Um, but I think the one thing that I'm always trying to keep in the back of my mind is, you know, lag effects, other things that could signal that maybe we are slowing down credit spreads, 
you know, watching the volatility index, you know, those are the, those are the measures that, that usually start to give an indication as to what we're seeing right now, while it may be good, um, you know, we're looking at a delayed sense of where we are in the economic cycle. And, and that's about as far as I take it in terms of trying to outguess anything, because I think that's a really hard game uh, to outguess what's happening on a macro level, given the magnitude of the inputs that go into it and the kind of the mental gymnastics you need to do to say, well, if this is that, then this will become that. And then that becomes a really complicated mosaic to sort out. Uh, Dave, let me just ask you one more question on this. When you say behind where we should be in the cycle, what does that mean? Well, what I mean by that is, um, you know, if we're looking at that, that jobs data, that was from four weeks ago. Um, here we are a month later, we're looking at data that took place four weeks ago. We don't know what the knock-on effect eventually is gonna be. You know, if that was, let's say, um, a, a growth of jobs in like super high paying jobs, well, that knock-on effect is gonna be relatively robust because probably people are gonna be spending a little bit more. Conversely, if it was a low jobs number, it's like, ooh, what does that mean four weeks from now? Now those people have been laid off, they've cut back spending and you know, you get the ripple effect that way. So that's, what, that's all I mean is that we're looking at a snapshot back in time. It's reported on you know, four weeks forward um, and you have to kind of, you have to at least keep that in mind in terms of how that data, that is presented. We're going to take a quick break and be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. I also want to bring Weston Nakamura back into this conversation. Obviously, lots going on today, lots happening in the news cycle in terms of Japan, BOJ. Hey, Weston, welcome back. Thank you. Hey, gentlemen. Thanks for letting me interrupt. <laughs> I was enjoying what you guys were saying. <laughs> I was taking notes. <laughs> well, this is great because uh, both of you guys are looking at USDJPY. Uh, Weston, I know you're looking at what's happening in Japan right now in terms of BOJ. Obviously, this is a huge story. Uh, it's one of those moments where it's broken out uh, of the Japanese news cycle and into the broader financial news cycle. Give us the 50,000-foot overview. What's going on? What do you see happening? Sure. Yeah. So the biggest sort of you know macro story that's been going on for the last uh since friday really um or actually since a week ago really monday is this intense focus on uh who the next bank of japan governor will be to succeed current governor haruhiko kuroda uh the most dovish central banker on steroids maybe ever um and so on friday of uh last week it was announced by the nikkei the media publication that this guy, Kazuo Ueda, has been named the next BOJ governor to succeed current Governor Kroda. Um, or so it would seem if you read and watch any of the financial media and all the published analysis since Friday. But let me be absolutely clear, despite the immense chatter of this next BOJ governor and his policies that will be implemented and the direction of BOJ policy, at, as of this current moment, there is no Bank of Japan official nomination. This was started by a Nikkei article released on Friday after Japan Hours. The media just ran with this. And even if it becomes a fact, 
It is currently not a fact, okay? So the Prime Minister of Japan nominates Bank of Japan governors, not the media. So I'm still sticking with my super contrarian call somehow, super contrarian, that although it may be very, it may very well be Ueda who's chosen, um, there's still a far higher possibility of a completely different nominee named in a few hours from now at 11 a.m. Um, Japan time uh, than what the broad consensus already has accepted. And by far higher probability, I mean even a 1% chance that it's someone else makes it an infinitely greater probability than the 100% certainty done deal that the broad consensus is acting upon. So basically the, the timeline from just like a week ago is basically goes as follows. A week ago on Monday, before Japan AM Open, current Deputy Governor Amamiya was leaked as the name uh, for the job by this same publication, by Nikkei. Uh, the same Nikkei who will later go on this week to say that it was this this Ueda guy on Friday. Um, on Friday, the Nikkei says, out of nowhere, it's this, like no-name guy. Um, but the real takeaway from that, uh, what I call press test, right, where, where essentially government or Bank Japan is basically working in tandem with the Nikkei, throwing things out there to see what market reaction is so that they don't have to, so that if markets react in a volatile manner, they could always just take it back and say that's fake news, that's nonsense, whatever. But, but they can't do it themselves because then it's official, right? So that they're, they're testing all these names and all that. And what the takeaway from the um, the Friday thing is not the naming of this this guy, this really no name guy, right? It's what it was was uh, testing of the headline. The real headline test was what if it weren't this assumed lifelong BOJ architect Amamiya who's been there? That was a real headline test, but they couldn't just like throw that out there and leave that there because the narrative would then become nobody wants the job, and that would be t horrendous. So the Ueda was. Likely a kind of a filler name, and then this filler name might actually become the real nominee because how you know markets didn't like jolt into extreme volatility. Either way, we don't know for sure yet who it is, and uh, it's kind of irresponsible, if not outright stupid, for all this very widespread acceptance of this analysis of this guy before the actual announcement to take place. And it actually shows the state of the market participants and comment commentators to be headline tourists, um, which is actually great because it could set up for like badly mispriced market trading opportunities in, in sort of the future. So well, that's- Well, let's talk a, a little bit about that. Uh, and we're gonna pull Dave in talking about the end in just one second, uh, but let's talk a little bit about that in terms of what the expectations are uh, yeah. or what the rumor mongering, I guess, might be the best way to say it, uh, is right now in Japan and across the globe. I think the FT had an, art, an, uh, an article out today, an opinion piece uh, saying that uh, the expectation uh, with uh, Mr. Ueda is that he is going to continue ultra-accommodative monetary policy. Is that the general framework that markets in Japan and analysts in Japan are applying to this news flow? Uh, I just first want to um, remind everyone that the FT that you just cited is owned by Nikkei. Remember that. Now, um, here, here's just like a, a, just a couple key points, right? First of all, anyone, okay, and I mean any single individual on planet Earth for you know eligibility eligibility to be nominated as the next Bank of Japan governor will be a hawk relative to current BOJ governor Kuroda. Like <laughs> if you think Kuroda uh, and the BOJ you know turned hawkish at the December policy meeting in which they kind of shock lifted the ten year JGB yield curve control trading ban, um, and if you ignored what he had explicitly said at the time that this is not a departure from easing, if you ignored it or ignored or doubted all that. Just take a look at what the BOJ has done since this so-called end of the BOJ easing regime that day in December. 
So immediately following that day in December of that meeting, okay, and the remaining days of the year of 2022, BOJ is not only conducting these fixed-rate, unlimited buying operations on the 10-year JGB as they had been since the implementation of yield curve control in September 2016, but following the December um, 22 meeting, BOJ began conducting fixed-rate, unlimited buying operations on the two-year and five-year JGBs for the first time ever. Okay, and then January of last month, uh, just last month, January of 2023, the Bank of Japan bought a record 23 trillion yen in JGBs for the month. Okay, so for simplicity's sake, let's just use exempt, uh, exchange rate of dollar yen 130. Okay, so that's basically what they did was they bought 180 billion dollars in JGBs for the month of January of 2023. And for context, that amount of QE that the, the the amount of QE that the U.S. Fed was doing during the doomsdays of March 2020 was 120 billion a month as the global economy was imploding. The Bank of Japan did 50% more QE last month than the Fed did at its QE peak, and they did it just last month, like uh, with it, half of which was done, by the way, two trading days, and they did so into rising inflation in Japan. Okay, so like uh, forget like the relative size of each economy, the U.S. being 4x larger. On an absolute level, the Bank of Japan fire hose the punch bowl. So that BOJ policy meeting shock rate hike and this so-called end of BOJ policy easing that was touted at the time and still touted today, let's like rethink that one. Like just as Governor Kuroda has explicitly repeated ad nauseum, since the Bank of Japan December December shock policy meeting, they've not only not been not tightening, they've eased to levels never before seen or measured even by Fed standards. Okay, All right, so talking about things that are being measured, uh, Austin, uh, Wes, and I want to switch here a little bit yeah. from the uh, from the context of the, the framework theoretical to the actual price action that we're seeing here. I want to take yeah. some, a look at some charts uh, and bring in Dave Floyd, of course, uh, who is positioning on this and thinking about it. I, I want to bring in uh, first the five-year chart. Uh, this is uh, USDJPY. This is dollar-yen. Uh, and you see this is the big picture chart. You see that very large spike up in 2022, uh, peaking, I guess, around uh, October 7th at about 145 or thereabouts. Then we go uh, onto the one-year chart. And if you take a look at this chart, what you see uh, is kind of this almost a curious zoom in uh, on that little bump in the middle, uh, that rise in the middle, uh, where you see that kind of mountain <laughs> pattern. Uh, and finally, I want to switch to the 30-day chart for a little bit more tactical view of what's happening here uh, in USDJPY. Uh, this gives you a sense of where we've gone uh, over the last 30 days, and it's been uh, kind of up at a 45-degree angle from around, uh, call it 128 to around 132 on this chart. Uh, Dave, you heard Weston uh, talking about what's going on there, how he's thinking about this from an analytic standpoint uh, in terms of what's next for the Bank of Japan. Uh, give us a little bit of a sense that you have when you're looking at this on a technical basis and as a trader. Yeah, um, you know, for me, uh, dollar yen for, you know, kind of to be full disclosure, it's one of the currency pairs that I definitely trade. It's probably the one that I have the most difficulty with. I, I've always found it to be challenging over the years. Um, so I want to be straight up about that. But nonetheless, you know, I've, I've done okay with it. But, you know, something like the euro or something I usually have a better read on. And that's a common thing I've I share with a lot of other my a lot of other of my colleagues that I've spoken to over the years. So dollar yen is a real tricky one to trade. That being well, why, said, why is that, Dave? What's the what's the driver of that? You know, that's a good question. I I've heard so many different things over the years. Uh, I had a colleague of mine years ago, and I think there's actually some truth to this. The way currency trades, 
seems to be indicative of their culture, kind of how their culture is. And I don't know what he, I, I know what he meant by that, but it kind of makes sense because if you look at the, the majority of trade participation that takes in a, in a current or the majority of trade participation in a currency, at least um, in the FX market, being redundant there, in the FX market, you know, a lot of that order flow is coming from the home country. Um, therefore, people have a different way of interpreting things. They have different risk tolerances. Again, this is just one per, per, one person's view that I've that I heard, and I was like, well, that's kind of interesting because you look at the British pound. You most people associate the British pound or the you know Britain with something austere and you know very regal, but you know. British society, at least maybe at a blue collar level, it's kind of rough and tumble. And the British pound is kind of a rough and tumble currency. It, it's quite volatile at times. Japanese yen, I've noticed over the years, it tends to be very methodical, very levels driven. And also at the same time, when it breaks a level, it can react really, really quickly. So very different characteristic than, let's say, the way the euro trades. So what's the reasoning? I couldn't tell you, although I suspect all of this policy easing and whatnot has a huge impact on the way dollar yen trades. Um, it's a little inconsistent with the level of uh, QE that Weston just mentioned, at least in terms of the last 30 or you know, last two months actually, because the yen is actually strengthened. Um, but again, correlations are always in flux. But to go back to your original question, you know, how am I seeing dollar yen right now? I'm pretty bullish on it. To be quite honest, I mean, we've had a, a good move off of the November highs, or I think that was actually the October highs. October, yeah, October 21st of 2022. We've um, sold off into January 15th, and we started to squeak a little bit higher. And again, for me, since I'm a levels trader, I don't know if you guys can show my screen here, but I've got us, I've got us above some pretty key levels here. Those levels being 131.32 and 131.80. So that to me suggests that the market wants to move above critical price levels where a lot of price action has taken place and a lot of volume over a period of time. And that to me is a, a better representation of where the market wants to go because it's being, um, it's being driven by where positioning is as opposed to maybe um, you know, some other thing that, that people are looking at, because ultimately, at the end of the day, people react on price action. Yeah, exactly. Dave, let me ask you this. Uh, you mentioned Weston's points earlier. Uh, you were listening in, obviously, to what he said. Mm -hmm. Any questions for Weston? I don't have any questions. I'm just, I'm really intrigued by the way he digests all this information. It's, it's a different way of viewing the market and one that's very valuable. So I don't have any questions for him because everything he came back with made a lot of sense. I think it actually it highlighted uh, what the market's perception of the Bank of Japan's future position is versus what in reality, what Weston is seeing it as right now. He's saying it doesn't matter who's elected as the next BOJ governor. No, they could never be as, as, as dovish as the current um, governor. And I, and I thought that was a fantastic point. Um, all the more reason that you might expect maybe dollar yen to go lower in the days and weeks and months ahead if you're going to get somebody in there who's going to be somewhat tighter. But again, that hasn't developed. And I'll, I'll wait for that to come in due time as to where dollar yen goes and make a decision accordingly. So let me jump in. We, it looks like we've got some uh, questions here uh, from our viewers I wanted to get out. Uh, so this one comes to us from Roger Bose from the Real Vision website. 
Dave, would you take a risk on boil at this price level? I'm sorry, was it on oil? He says boil, B-O-I-L. I have the faintest idea what that means. Ooh, yeah, you know, I appreciate the question, Roger, but if you, I don't know if you're, if you're seeing my screen right now, but the tabs across my screen are pretty much the markets that I follow closely. Um, doesn't mean I can't pull up boil. Like I'm happy to bring that up right now, but I'm going to be giving you a very cursory and maybe not the type of information you might want, but Hey, let's pull it up. Ash, can I, can I, can I give you, can I just, uh, show that chart just to lead on to what Dave was saying about like, cause those levels on dollar yen, I have that chart exactly like uh from a different angle but the exact same levels yeah if we could share if we can share that by the way i think he's it's talking about the pro shares uh ultra bloomberg natural gas index is that the what you're pulling up dave yeah i believe that's what it is um the way my chart is set up it doesn't show what the actual name of the symbol is or what, yeah the name corresponding to the symbol um technically speaking i mean this is a train wreck um at least if you're bullish um and I'm just I'm speculating here, Roger. But if you're asking from the standpoint of should I be a buyer because it's quote unquote so cheap? No, the market is is speaking volumes to us based on this chart alone. Um, while it may seem counterintuitive, our human brains want to twist things around. If anything, you should just stick with the trend and short it. I'm not saying to do that. And I'm speculating that you're asking from the standpoint that you're considering going long, but that to me is, that's a really hard game to play. That's when you start getting into that, um, you get into the really skewed returns, you get into that negative convexity because, you know, you're hoping to make a couple bucks and it just keeps going down further. And um, I, I, I would avoid that. I don't see any reason to want to own this. Would I own it above $9.15? Maybe. Maybe that'd be the only way I would consider that. It's a technical level that are drawn on my charts that are all based on um, volume, price, and time. So it's not a subjective measure of the market. It's an objective measure of where participants are kind of battling it out. And when you get moves above or below those levels, the the logic is you get an acceleration above or below those levels, and that tells you where we're going. So hopefully that helps, Roger. We're going to take another quick break and be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. Let's see if we can uh, go to uh, Weston's chart. Weston, the chart you were just mentioning, jump in. Yeah. Um, so, Brian, that's uh, the third uh, chart. So this is um, – so, Dave, you mentioned uh, late October as the top in U.S. Treasury yields as well as dollar yen. And then you also mentioned mid-January as the uh, subsequent bottom in those respectively. Those two are, and I could give you the exact, like down to the second time of like um, where, why and where that turned around. 
The reason that that happened, that top take in um, October, that was October 21st. It was a Friday, October 21st of 2022, at like around 10.30 a.m. Eastern. That was when the uh, Japanese officials did their second round of uh, unilateral intervention. They blasted dollar yen down five handles in like, I don't know, like half an hour or whatever it was. That uh, triggered an enormous record-sized short squeeze on the, the very crowded short yen futures position that then led into a whole bunch of uh, catalysts to close out that short yen position. Um, things like you know slowing down of uh, U.S. CPI, um, a slightly less hawkish Fed, uh, the Bank of Japan getting uh, perceived as getting uh, hawkish on the other side of it. Um, and so on and so forth. And then the January Bank of Japan reading was the bottom tick in uh, in in USDJPY as well as ten-year US Treasury yields. So strangely, um, you know, I mean, look, these markets obviously the foreign exchange markets are international markets, but the US Treasury market is a is not a US like market. It is a global asset class. It's a risk-free rate globally, and so you have global market participants, the largest of which foreign-wise is are Japanese, and so you're going to get. Um, like these catalysts that are happening are happening because of Japanese like policy activity that is actually causing these major reversals in in these assets. So um, it's something to certainly keep uh, an eye on. More, I mean, like you, you get the like US CPI numbers and stuff like that. Yeah, you're gonna get that tomorrow. But um, like the the actual big turns, they they happen on more so on BOJ and Japan related policy because that's far more sort of uh, uncertain. Um, and then so in just in terms of like kind of like a like a near term, immediate term timeline, when we're looking into going into CPI over the next 24 hours, right? This is what we have. We have basically we have the Bank of Japan um, like official nominee that comes out at 11 a.m. Uh, Japan time. Uh, you also have uh, Japan GDP. Who cares? No one cares about that. Um, and then you also have course, is that um, tonight. Is that tonight? Eastern time? Yeah, right. In a few a few hours from now. Right. Um, whatever the and then after that, uh, then late, um, you also have like a, a five year fund supply operation. Basically, that's that's the Bank of Japan attempting to keep a lid on five year JGB yields. Um, you have an operation set for that, like scheduled for that, and then you have CPI um, in the AM for um, for the US. Now, those three things, those like uh, three catalysts, all kind of blended together. What that means is that there is no single like uh, isolated catalyst um, that you can attribute a market move to. So, in other words, if you get um, some whoever the Bank of Japan nominee is or whatever it is, that price action that you see. That's not a reaction, you know, for, for that because there's going to be a lot of sideline capital waiting for those other two catalysts to occur. Um, and then once you let's say, and then once you once you get like the the US CPI print, if you see a massive move in whatever direction in, in any asset class, that could also be pent up uh, flows that now digested the you know we got the boj nominee we got that name now we're waiting for this now we're now we're acting in aggregate and all that right so don't like just look at each of those in isolation and say like oh the market has interpreted this cpi print as you know whatever implication for the fed or whatever is no there's a whole bunch of things that are going to be all wrapped together and it's going to be basically impossible to discern which is which for for that so there's something fascinating Fascinating take. Interesting insight, uh, Weston, about the way traders think about markets and how they process data. Uh, we have one time for one more question here. Uh, this one comes to us from Ralph Humphrey. It's a question for Dave. Uh, Dave, could you give us a brief short-term outlook for the currencies 
you follow. Uh, I'm mindful that we may uh, be a little bit short on time, so maybe just the highest conviction one that you have right now uh, in terms of FX. Yeah, right now for me, I, I'm I'm looking at the euro, which is probably the one that I trade the most. Uh, we've been bouncing off of um, a pretty key support level here at 106.60. Um, I'm bullish on the dollar index, therefore I'm vis-a-vis, -vis, I have to be bearish on the euro since they're inversely correlated. So um, I'd be looking for a break below 106.60. I might decide to go short before that, but certainly on a break below 106.60, that's something that would bring me into a position in the euro on the short side. That's that's the one that I'm keeping the closest eye on right now. Okay, we do have time. I have to read this. It's not really a question. It's more of a comment per se. Uh, it comes to us from Sneedless Gaming. Weston looks like he's live from prison. I think that's a brick wall comment. I think. No, I'm I'm in I'm in prison. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Yeah, it's good to get the view from the inside. Uh, so with that, let's uh, do final thoughts, key takeaways from both of you. Weston, first over to you. Final thoughts you'd like to leave our listeners and viewers with. Um, final thought, big picture for regarding this Bank Japan uh, pick nominee. In the big picture, in the big grand scheme of things, it doesn't matter who it is. It doesn't matter what their intentions are. It doesn't matter what the history is. It doesn't matter what their policy preferences are. It doesn't even matter what their policy like you know, intentions are. Uh, because the ghost of Kuroda is going to be haunting this uh, regime for a very long time, and they do not have these like buffet of options to choose from. Eventually, they're going to have to continue on with this irreversible path that Governor Kuroda has put the Bank of Japan and Japan in. And so, any sort of like um, move that you see that like a departure, this huge departure from Kurodonomics. That's an opportunity timed well with like, you know, someone like Dave is a far better trader than I am. Uh, if you time it well, you can trade uh, it to revert back to the days of continued, you know, yield curve control, capping of the yield or whatever it is, or continued, you know, easing and accommodation, uh, you know, even if it's from by another name or, or label or whatever it is in some form from Japan, because that's the only sort of option left. Lest they like like to blow up the entire world and their their pension system and all that kind of stuff. Dave, over to you. We'll let you close it out. Final thoughts, key takeaways you'd like to leave us with. Well, I would just like to say to um, to Weston, I think I think the analysis you did here today was fantastic. Gave me a couple things to think about, and given how you wrapped it up there, I think that's really quite uh, good. Um, and again, it's it's problematic across all central banks, but in particular for the BOJ. I think they've made a mess of things, but it's a conversation for a for a different day. Um, you know, the way I approach things, you know, again, I'm not trying to go into tomorrow with any opinions on anything, but I'm happy to react to what happens. You know, for me, it's always about the price levels. Does the trade make sense? Is there an asymmetric payoff? And I think the other thing is, you know, you don't have to be in there every day doing things. Um, you, you, you should be trading when something fits into your trading style. And I think the key thing, as always, is make sure you know what your trading style is, because if you don't know, you're going to be trying all sorts of different things and you'll never get any traction going forward that way. So I know that's not necessarily trade related information, but I'd be I'd be kind of being disingenuous if I said, hey, you know, do X, Y and Z if these numbers come out that way, because that's that's just way too tall of an order, at least for the time frame that I trade on. Yeah, important context, and I think it's always so insightful and helpful to give uh, a little bit of context on how you think about things more broadly. Dave, always a pleasure to have you on the show. By the way, I see uh, 
Nine Trader has just asked this question. Is that a Canadian took on Ash's head? It is actually a uh, Merino cap from New Hampshire, an American company called Minus 33, and they're the warmest Merino wool hats uh, known to humankind. I'm a huge fan. Guys, fantastic show, man. To get to hear someone talk about this from the perspective uh, of a trader looking at technical levels, uh, Weston on the ground in Tokyo, bringing us a little bit of context on how you see things more fundamentally, uh, how you uh, analyze what's happening uh, as someone who knows a lot about Japan. Just a great conversation, man. I hope we can do this again soon. Absolutely. Weston, thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. Good talking with you again. And Ash, as always, and the whole team at, at Real Vision, you guys always do a great job. Thank you so much. Oh, yeah, thanks, guys. Good. Really a pleasure to have you both here. And thanks again for watching Real Vision Daily Briefing. See you tomorrow. We'll be back with Tony Greer. See you then. Have a great afternoon, everybody. What's up, revolutionaries? Thanks for tuning in to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. For more content like this, head over to realvision.com and get unfiltered access to the very best, brightest, and biggest names in finance. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.